2: Hello and welcome to All Stats Aren't We, a podcast in which Leeds fans cast their combined eye over goings on Elland Road, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. I'm Darren Driver, the Bedeelin Skinner of the podcast, taking the piss out of the stats dweebs to disguise my own fundamental lack of curiosity, and I'm joined by the Chris Witty of the podcast, John McKenzie, relentlessly predicting our doom with the aid of spreadsheets, a slideshow, the inevitable march of facts, all the while taking tons of abuse for it on Twitter, and finally, the Marquis Smith reading the classified scores of the podcast, drawling a list of numbers in the hinterlands of coherence, it's Josh Hobbs. See how you doing. Have you recovered from Sunday yet?
3: I'm I'm okay, mate. I've been a little bit ill in the last few days, so I'm. You might hear I'm a bit hoarse on this pod, but I'm I'm still furious about Sunday, <laughs> to be honest. So
2: I'm, I'm I'm really not surprised. And what what particularly is making you vent your your spleen with the most venom?
3: I think the thing that's most annoying me is seeing people saying, "But it almost worked," as if somehow, as if that means we didn't completely. Get the approach totally wrong in the second half like just just because you need, like people who listen to this podcast or read anything that we ever write. I hope that you don't just think that results mean that it, the the plan has worked or like you might have got away with it, but it doesn't mean the plan has actually like played out and worked properly because whatever England were trying to do in that second half, it didn't work.
2: And uh, another man who likes to vent his spleen about defensive football is is John. John, how are you today? Do you know what? I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to last this whole podcast without a cold shower with Hobbsy's
4: husky voice and and anger. It's really doing a lot for me right now. Um, But hopefully hopefully we'll get through it. I'm doing really well, mate.
3: Yeah, sorry. I I really did um, unleash a bit there. So I'll try and calm down again.
2: I hope you've got it out of your system. Yeah. (laughs) So we'll just have a quick talk about some news, and so, some wag has written on here that Kiko Kasia has officially fucked off, and that wag was me, <laughs> and I'm absolutely delighted, as I'm sure both of you are, and it seems like a, a good a good move well overdue uh, for, for the club, wouldn't you say, John?
4: It's a funny one, isn't it, because the, the, there's obviously relief there that, that this has finally happened and that we won't have to endure the emotional roller coaster that any game that he plays even as a dead rubber or a cup game you, you don't have to go through that anymore and I'm looking forward to that but this is something that should have happened a long time ago in my opinion and um, look we don't need to run over the all stats on we opinion on Kiko Kassir we've made it very clear from the very off what we thought of it and I, I almost don't like giving him too much airtime. but yeah this sort of move is long overdue and I'm glad that it's come for sure.
2: Unless uh, Hobbsy wants to go into a long and rambling soliloquy about it, I think we should probably just move on, shall we?
3: Let's move on, yeah.
2: So it seems that there are a number of, of names on the table for who will um, who will take that, that spot. Um, so what, what are the names that we've got flying about, Hobbsy? There's Freddie Woodman,
3: who is a Newcastle goalkeeper, been on loan at Swansea, watched him a lot at Swansea. I, I like him, um, think he's very good and Christopher Clayson i don't know if i've said his name right at all i probably haven't knowing me um who is plays for Valorenga uh, and Norway under 21s um again someone that i've seen quite a bit and i like um probably more in the um in the mold of of Melier than um than Woodman is uh, although we, we might not have to have someone that's in the mold of of bit to be the backup. Um, and the other one is Card Cardenas, um, who plays for Levante. Um, but I don't know him. I've never watched him.
2: Any thoughts about any of those, John?
4: I refuse to talk about goalkeepers at the best of times. So I'm not going. You're not going to get any predictions for me. The only thing I will say is that Freddie Woodman was in goal for the Pablo goal, right against Swansea. Is that right? He was. Yeah. So I already have a lot of affection in my heart for him. <laughs> that's all I'll say. What about you, Darren? You're the you're the goalkeeper expert here. Definitely not
2: an expert, but um, I had a look a, a good look at the Norwegian lad whose name I've immediately forgotten. Um, yes, yeah, thank you. Um, and I spent about maybe maybe twenty five minutes, thirty minutes looking at him yesterday because uh, i would not seen him before, and he he looks good to me. I think I think there are some definitely some parts of his goalkeeping that that could do with improvement. I think you know perhaps his handling might not be as secure as it could be. I think. Um, but I, I do think he's got a lot of strength. I think his his ability to to, to, to clip that kind of 40 to 50-yard ball out to the wings with his left foot looks really strong. I think his positioning looks really good. Um, it looks like he covers the goal really well and his footwork in, in terms of the goalkeeping fundamentals looks really strong. So, um, there, you know, I think there's probably a lot to work with there and, and he would be a high-potential signing if that's the way that the club chose, chose to go is kind of my view of it, really.
3: If anyone wants to know a bit more about him, I retweeted from my personal account, uh, Josh A. Hobbs, if you don't follow. Um, I retweeted a thread from Ben Wells, who's a Norwegian football expert. He tweeted um, a, a long thread about Clayson and because he'd seen that he's linked with Leeds. So he, he basically wanted to tell people what he's like as a player. I think it's good. <gasps>
2: okay well, well, let's stop talking about goalkeepers before John starts falling asleep and <laughs> let's move on to today's topic and um, so today we thought it'd be a, a really good idea to, to give you an overview of statistics and you know we often talk about various metrics on the podcast and we quite over, quite often skip over you know what they mean or we don't reference what the intricacies of them are and we're aware that for a newer listener that might be prohibitive or you know off-putting and even for listeners who've been you know around and listening to us for a while you might have heard us talk about various metrics or certain metrics and wonder what the hell we're talking about and I'd, I'd probably describe myself as the kind of least stats um, literate person on the podcast I'd probably describe myself as um, stats curious Um, and to be honest I've I've been on this podcast for you know maybe well over a year now and there there are definitely certain statistical elements that I don't understand fully so it'd be really good for me to kind of listen to this too. So I thought to kind of get us started it might be good to uh, begin talking about what got you two into into stats as a way of, uh, of looking at football in the first place so we'll start with you John.
4: Yeah, so this goes back to the time when I was doing a fair amount of coaching. So I coached a a women's team for about four years um, and I had done coaching before. I'd gone through the university system as a player and and, and helped out as a coach when I was doing um, undergrad work. And then when I was a grad, I started doing the coaching more full time. So I'd always gone through the coaching systems as a as a sort of guinea pig, just picking things up from from what other people were doing. But obviously, when I was coaching myself and um, was in charge of the the team, I was off, off, obviously off, often thinking about like, how do you play football better? How do you get your team to perform better? Um, so on on Twitter, I was coming across people who are smart people um, on Twitter who were talking about tactics and we're talking about stats and I guess I got into that into the habit of of thinking yeah so much of what we say about football is just based on on narrative ideas Um, but is there something maybe a little bit more um, substantive that you can base these ideas on Um, and so from there I basically ended up getting into stats I I suppose uh, I, I wouldn't describe myself as particularly good And on the stats side of things, I think I'm I think I'm aware of how stats work and how you can use them. But I'm not doing any you know cutting edge fundamental programming or or building models or any of that kind of stuff. Um, Obviously, my day to day job at the moment is working for a company who are a football uh, statistics um, company, a data company. So I'm uh, working with a lot of people who are very good at that, and I've sort of picked a few tips up along the way from from them. But for me, the the big question is is and I think this is something that we'll get into, like stats aren't things that I particularly um, worry about in terms of being Complete signifiers for how good your team is. But I do think that they are a tool in a toolbox for, for coaches to, to be able to find out what the is, what's happening in the game and how you can do things better. So, uh, in, that, in that vein, that's why I started All Stats, aren't we? Because I figured there's not really a huge amount of people looking at the way that stats can influence the way that you look at leads. And so, um, I'm interested in what the statistics say about leads and how they compare to what I see when I watch the game.
2: Hmm. Yeah, what about you, Hobsey?
4: Ever
3: since I was first sort of grew up watching football, I, I was even from a young age. I was always interested in in the sort of analysis of the of the game. So I'd I'd always like watching the halftime analysis and match of the day when they would break down the the games afterwards. The punditry, obviously, now I've, I've grown to realise how terrible a, a lot of that actually is. <laughs> but that was what sort of started me off in trying, basically, wanting to not just enjoy football for the emotional experience as much as obviously I do but um I wanted to understand how it worked and how you did things well and what oh that was an amazing goal how did that actually get scored so that just started me off always being interested in that but then just I it was quite weird I think just in the last few years I just realized that stats um were were a real part in, in telling that story and painting that picture more more fully. Um, and I, I just read a lot, really read a lot of books and just read articles and and I've just I've just tried to learn a lot uh, about it. Um, I just realised that stats can tell you um more than what your eye can see because it's so easy to um just follow the ball uh, in football uh, or just see what you expect to see and, but stats can give a lot of context
2: this is something you touched on in, in your answer John um, it's interesting to think you know through the benefits that that we get from stats and and some of the things that, that the stats can show us but I think it'd be also fair to say that there are some some limitations there and it's important to speak about those from the off I think so what what are the limitations of stats hobsey
3: as I was just saying like stats can can help give context to what we see but also if you use stats obviously without what you're seeing you can you can also get a very misleading picture um i think you've always got to marry them up together um i think stats uh they can um paint the wrong picture out of context in terms of things like not knowing what a team's strength is so uh, a player who's maybe quite An average player, but plays in a really dominant team, will probably have quite um, comparable stats to someone that's maybe like a a significantly better player than them, but is playing in a much worse team. Uh, And and that so, if you just use stats to compare the two, you might think um, you might make the wrong conclusion about who's better. Uh, That that's a really important thing that I've learned over time is how is team effects are, are just huge. Uh, and league effects and all kinds of things that are the sort of surrounding noise around around stats.
4: We live in a, an age where I think people maybe this isn't as true now that we've had a pandemic, but it feels as though there was there was a point in time when you know if you threw numbers at something, you could almost say, well, you know, I win the argument because I've got numbers to back up what I'm doing. Um, but you, you can misuse numbers all the time. I think the, the Euros is a great example of that. If you look at a lot of the tweets that were going out after the final on, on Sunday, there was people saying, Oh, look, um, Calvin Phillips and, um, are the two players who ran the most in in, in the Euros, it, which is an interesting stat in and of itself. But then you you dig under the surface a little bit and you say, well, why are those two? The two who ran the most in 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 the in the Euros. Well, they both play defensive midfield positions, deeper in in the team for the two teams that got the furthest. So obviously they're going to have more distance because they've had the most minutes for those two teams in those two positions. So. We'll talk about different ways that you can overcome those kind of problems. But when you use um, when you're using numbers, you always have to be aware of the fact that 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 numbers are simply representing something that's happened, and um, the the you, you're always caught between these two moments. One of them is that what people talk about in terms of sample size. So if you if you take a small group of games that a player plays and make predictions about his ability on that basis, then you're running the risk of of just taking a sample that. Maybe that player played really well or played really badly in. Um, maybe a couple of games. Uh, you could, can you really tell anything about their, a player's numbers from that? But at the other, I guess at the other end of the spectrum as well. You know, football has a sample size problem. In that you need a really big number of uh, you need a really big number of games in order to be able to make statistical um, statements, but football doesn't really work in sort of big number ways either. Like Leeds, at the end of last season, Leeds overperformed their defensive metrics in the last ten games to the tune of about ten goals. That means like in the last ten games, the underlying numbers suggested that Leeds should maybe have conceded one goal fewer per uh, one goal more per game than they actually did. When it comes to next season, it's unlikely that that trend will continue. Um, And so when we're talking about big sample sizes, you you also have that problem. So how do we talk about a run of form that maybe is 10 games long um, when when we're looking for, for bigger numbers as well. So so there's those, those two things to take into account. And I think the other thing is, um, we use a lot of big words on this podcast, but this, th- this word is often used to describe football um, and, and the analysis of football, which is stochastic. Football is stochastic. And stochastic means that largely football is a, a random sport. Things happen in a largely chaotic way. But in such a way that you can actually make predictions about things. But because it's such a small um, scoring game, then you know things can happen. Like teams can be lucky in a game and, and hold out for ninety minutes and get a single goal and and win. Like England could have won the Euros if they'd have scored their their penalties. And you know these, that that is basically the long and short of it. We use statistics to try and make the picture a little bit clearer, but that doesn't mean to say that the underlying reality is any anything like predictable in in the ways that we might want it to be so you just have to have all of these things in mind when you're looking at, at, the, at the 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 numbers and we're, we're simply using numbers to say I have this idea about football and the numbers seem to suggest that this might be this might be true or this might be false or whether well, there might be something wrong with the way we're looking at things so it's an interpretational thing even though we're using numbers and people seem to think that using numbers means that you've got the right or wrong answer it's it's much more of an interpretational thing.
2: Hmm. Yeah, we should also talk about Confirmation bias and and stats, shouldn't we, John?
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm always aware of when we're using data and when when any um, specific club-focused team is doing that. There's always going to be a tendency to try and make your players look better. Um, so, I, I guess one of the reasons why I've I've developed a bit of a um, a, a reputation for being negative is that uh, is that i always try to avoid that so i i try and uh, look at the numbers and think right how can we read this in a negative way because there's going to be plenty of people out there who will be reading it uh, the data in the most positive way possible so um confirmation bias is just simply a shorthand of, of saying that when when you go out looking for things and and you know you you want to say I don't know, a certain player on the Leeds team is brilliant and so you look through the data and you ignore the the, the bits that aren't really that good or suit your argument and then you latch onto the things which which do um, and I guess that's something that we generally try and avoid but it, it's important to say as well that we're all, we are all going to be biased in certain ways. Um, it is interpretational as I said so you can't really avoid that so you've got to, tr- you've just got to try and st- tread the line between thinking that you're being objective and realising that you will be subjective um, inevitably. <laughs>
2: well, obviously, if you could uh, stop smirking because I said the word absolutely again, it'd be good <laughs> if you can, you know, maybe take the next question. So um, how widely do you think stats are used within the football industry? Um, and, and how do analytics departments work within the broader run of the football club, I suppose?
3: Well, I think extremely widely, um, whether the um the sort of link up is is that smooth is is another question but i think you know there, there's not going to be top teams that that don't have analysis departments uh, and don't have um don't use some kind of stats in in both their um their match analysis and in their recruitment analysis like that 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 will be part of it and we know that Leeds um are um, customers of multiple um, <laughs> multiple stats um, companies, data companies. They're, they're customers of Analytics FC. They're public about that. Um, they're customers of Stats Bomb. They're, they're public about that too. Um, so leads are, are using uh, data a lot. And I think leads are one of the better clubs in terms of how they actually um, use data uh, whether or not uh, that sort of translates into everything that Bielsa does is something we can maybe talk about a bit later on so you no know, john's got some feelings on that um but leads 100% use loads of of data um yeah just to give insight into how we are performing as a team how our opponents perform uh, which ways they might hurt us uh, where they might be weak and then, when looking at potential transfer targets, um, does this player excel in uh, the areas that we want them to excel in? That that kind of thing, and they they'll get things from um, from from StatsBomb, from from Transfer Lab, from all kinds of of things like that, where they can get statistical breakdowns on players. I think last summer, Bielsa was pictured in in Costa. With a with a like a load of stats bomb radars that, that he was obviously looking at that he'd been given um perhaps a short list by or by Victor Orta and he was just casting his eye over over those so Leeds are doing it all the time there are other clubs that will be super smart in doing that as as we know Brentford Norwich Brighton then there'll be others that are um they'll they'll have people telling them the stuff. But you don't always get the coaches or the managers that actually maybe want to hear it. And that's always the challenge, I think, of can um, can those data people make the points uh, in a way that old school coaches want to actually listen? Um, not even just old school, but just coaches in general want to, want to listen and get genuine insight from.
2: Yeah. So I guess it's about how the analytics department communicate their findings to the wider club I guess it's the
3: biggest thing
4: I think as well there's the the question is to what extent do the departments have any influence in the clubs so every club like Josh says, we will have a a, a data analysis analysis department. The question is going to be how integrated into the full system is that? Because obviously a data analysis is a relatively modern phenomenon and football clubs have been around for a, a long time. So you get a lot of clubs where they just patch on a data analysis department on the side and... They are there doing good work, and they'll pass their work on. But because the club is still being run as it was twenty, thirty years ago, it's just sort of put to the side. It's not taken seriously. And the, the thing about clubs like um, Brentford and and Norwich is that those departments are fundamental to the running of the club. The club is structured around the smart running of, of of a football club, and so they those guys have a lot more of a say in it. So my question is always like, if you're supporting a club, like what what is the role of the analysis department in the running of the club are they simply on the side of stuck on the side there because i guess you have to sort of have due diligence and say well yeah you know we've got a data analysis department or are they actually looking at the, what, what the processes of the club are, are doing are they involved in the recruitment processes are they talking to coaches are they is, is there any communication between uh, between the various departments of the
2: club John, you've said in our group chat quite a few times that you, you don't really think that Marcelo Bielsa is that into stats or that interested in them. And I've always kind of wanted to push you on that further on and, and, and ask you why it is that you think that.
4: I don't think that he's necessarily anti-stats. I don't want to to make that claim at all. But I just get the impression that whenever he talks about the statistical aspects of the, of the game, he does so very much as an old school coach. So after games, he talks about XG, um, but he will never call it xG xG being expected goals of course but he'll talk about oh this club this team had a certain amount of good chances and on the balance of play we probably deserve to to win that um so i get the impression that Obviously, and, and this is the thing, right? stats stats is just a way of, of codifying the ideas that we have about the game. So expected goals is just a, a way of representing numerically what people think about good and bad chances. Um, and it gives you a little bit more of, of a universality to it so that you're not just saying, well, that felt like a good chance and that felt like a bad chance. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that because he's a smart watcher of the game, he sort of has his own intrinsic stats stat system where it'll be like you know he, he talks about there's these these numbers of ways of being able to create a goal from a wide area and stuff and that's what advanced statistics are, are, are statisticians are doing now they're looking at chances creating and they're using clustering um, algorithms to then work out what the the most profitable ways of, of producing goals are and yeah bielsa is doing that to a certain extent in his head um so when i say that i think he don't think i don't think he really cares about stats what i what i think is that if you came at him with this sort of high jargon stuff and said yeah, but this player's got this amount of expected assists. I don't think he would be that bothered. I think he would be much more bothered by just watching a player's tape and just saying, "Yeah, I like this player because I've seen the things that I've seen him do." Um, you know, I like, and I think that's that's what it comes down to. Stats is a really good way of aggregating huge amounts of information into small numbers, so that you can say this person's got um, seven point eight expected assists last season. Now, what does that mean? That means that if you actually go back through the tapes and look at all of the assists that that player made they would total up to this amount of expected goals and like that's 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 good that's useful because no one in their head can think a, a, an entire season of of chances and and then quickly top them top them up so all that stats is doing there is just Putting a number on something that you're probably already intrinsically thinking while you're watching the game, and allowing you then to to codify all of these all of these events down into into shorthand numbers, where you can say this amount of tackles, or you know this amount of pressures, this amount of um, headed aerial duels one, which you probably would have a sense of if I said to you. No, talk to me about Liam Cooper and his heading game like do we think he's strong or weak and, and most people I think would would if you went on these these various metrics and you asked them to guess would probably be fairly close I mean we will talk a little bit later about the fact that we often overrate how good players are at certain things but um, that's all that Stats is doing it's, it's simply codifying these numbers uh, these events that we see on, on, in a season and, and making it easier for us to assess how good a player actually is
2: okay Let's start to go over the individual metrics that that we think are useful. So, before we really dig into this, uh we we should mention that we'll be using the phrase per ninety a lot um, in this episode, and and we do use it in our podcast in in general. So, so Hobbsy, why do we do that?
3: Because it's the
2: most fair way of
3: doing it. So you you need to have a, a big enough sample size uh, to do per ninety. So maybe like seven full games between seven and 10 full games i think you can get a sort of a fair um sample size for for per 90 but otherwise you can end up you just end up with the players that have played the most minutes um coming out the best uh, in in a lot of the stats um but if you do it in per 90 then it's um that that's sort of aggregating it the same as for everyone
4: If a player's got 10 tackles and he's played 10 games, then he's got one tackle per game, so one tackle per 90. Whereas if a player's got 10 tackles and they've played 100 games, then they've got 0.1 tackles per 90. And if you were to compare the two of them, you'd say, well, they've both got 10 tackles. Whereas in reality, per 90 minutes every game, you'd expect one of them to get 10 times as many tackles in as the other one. So it's just a way of making sure we're working to some kind of average so that we have a good way of being able to balance comparisons between players.
2: So a question I've been thinking about a lot since I joined All Stats is this. If Marcelo Bielsa's leads are playing well, then then what should be the metrics that we look at to, to kind of quantify that? What is it that you're keeping an eye on, John, when you're looking back over the data from a match?
4: I'm always going to say off-the-ball stuff because I'm a firm believer that the, the real upside that we get from Marcelo Bielsa is that we have a an, an off-ball system, an out-of-possession system, which is fairly unique and gives us a big upside against other teams as well so usually the first thing that I'm going to look at when I'm going to FB ref after a game to find out what's gone on in a game is is usually the uh, the 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 off-ball stuff so yeah I have a bit of a soft spot for that but I'm sure Joshua will talk a little bit more about some of the on, on-ball stuff that Bielsa gets us doing.
3: If you think of uh, the Brighton games I think, don't think anyone's going to try and say that Leeds played well in the Brighton games. Our, our big problems, obviously, our XG four in both those games was rubbish. Certainly in the f- in the first game against me, I think it was our lowest in the season. Probably was in the, in the away game as as well. But our, our huge problem in that game was progressing the ball. So normally with Leeds, it's Luke Ayling will will have really high uh, progressive passes and progressive runs, but Leeds were really struggling to get the ball forwards down down the wings because of the way that uh, Brighton's set up. So I'm often looking for, is Luke Ayling doing what I expect Luke Ayling to be doing? So are, are his progressive runs and his progressive passes high? Um, is, is Bamford getting getting a good number of uh, touches in the box? That that will tell you that our attack's working, uh, even if maybe we're not getting shots off. Obviously, because that's the other thing, you want to see that we're getting shots away. You want to see that our, our um, XG is, is high and our XG against is, is low. Those are the sort of the really basic things that could tell you that we've performed well. I don't think it's necessarily so important just to look at things like possession or anything like that, because I think possession numbers can, can mean sort of nothing.
0: Ready to pop the question?
2: Okay, so let's move on to talk about some of the individual metrics and let's, let's start with the, the big daddy. Let's start talking about um, XG because as we all know, all stats are the, the champions of XG and no one ever does sing that. Um, so XG is the idea of, of expected goals and I know it can be quite uh, controversial in some corners, but I, I really do think it has some really useful functions. So can you talk us through expected goals, John, and, and tell us why it's such a useful metric?
4: So XG stands for expected goals and expected goals is a metric which just allows us to to assess the quality of chances that are created um, so you know you'll have seen on the TV when the Euros are on that sometimes a little box in the bottom corner flashes up and it says this team had seven chances, three of these were on target um, XG just allows you to put maybe another layer on on that data so if both teams had seven shots three on target how do we know who probably had the better chances well what we do is we we build a model uh, we take all of we take thousands and thousands of data points from from a number of seasons across a number of leagues and what we say is let's look at all of the chances that have been taken in that data set um, let's look at various variables so you can look at things like where the shot is taken from which is the most important thing with xg we can also do other things like you can look at whether the balls in the um, in the air when it's hit whether it's a header whether or not it's um those defenders in front of you where the goalkeeper is you can you can make however big your models you want to be um you can add more and more variables to them and all it does then is that you then take a a shot uh, from a game and then you plug it into your model and say based on our model with all of these thousands of data points of all of these examples of chances what percentage likelihood was has this shot of going in given the same variables in place. So location, uh, whether or not it's head or the height of the ball when it's hit, got a defensive structure in front of them, goalkeeper positioning, etc., Um And it will just pump, pump out a number. So for example, uh, a decent chance would be, I don't know, 0.4 XG, which means that in 40% of the chances, uh, 40% of the time you'd expect that chance to be scored uh, in a comparable league um, with c- comparable players, according to the league average. So, um, that's that's simply all it is it's it's it is uh, it is pretty basic you can argue all you want about different models and i think sometimes people get confused because they assume that xg is a is, is going to just spit out a, a consistent number every time but obviously there's different models some models have more or less variables um statsbomb have, have started introducing more and more variables into theirs to try and get it more and more um uh, try and get a more and more Um, accurate figure but at the end of the day that's what what you're trying to do then is say well we know that these teams have had this amount of chances but let's tot up the the um the xg of these so let's say you had four chances at 0.2 then your overall xg is going to be 0.8 which means that in that game if it was played an infinite number of times you would expect it to have uh, you'd expect 0.8 goals to be scored um again caveats about small sample sizes we, we shouldn't really be using xg models to um to try and judge who deserved to win a game because 90 minutes is just uh, is, is just not big enough really. But what you can use it for is over the course of a season you can say this team weren't putting up en- enough expected goals or this team were overperforming their expected goals so they scored more goals than you might expect uh, and that might indicate that maybe a team isn't quite as good as they they look on paper Um And inversely, you know, a team might concede fewer goals than you expect them to, and you might have questions about whether or not that's a that's a trend that you might continue to see. So that's that's what expected goals is. It's just a way of assessing chance quality and trying to work out you know the odds of goals being scored on the basis of that.
2: And Hobbsy, are there any bad or you know maybe less than optimal uh, uses of expected goals? Would you say
3: you get those times where people just assess a player's quality? Based on just one single shot xg of like, oh, I I can't believe it. He, he's he's missed uh, he's missed this absolute sitter that was 0.9 point nine xg from from five yards out or whatever. Either you know that Raheem Sterling one in the Champions League against Leon uh, last not the season just gone but the one before, and people being like, how is this not even like one xg? Like no no one could ever miss a chance like this um but obviously it happens that you get these freak examples and it, it happens um I, we sh- we all do it like we fall into it ourselves i i know i did because i i, I specifically remember um held acosta missing a chance uh in the uh wolves game which we drew uh we lost one nil and he had, he got a chance right in the last minute and i was sort of really trying to defend him uh when when he missed this chance. Um, is people saying, Oh, he's got to score, he's got to score that, and I'm going, Oh, it's only 0.2 XG, and so and It's like it, it's a bit pointless, um, trying to defend uh, a player or attack a player <laughs> based on just one XG number for a shot. Like, he maybe, yes, he should have done better with that, but also, I the point that I was trying to make is that you've got people saying, like, this is an inexcusable miss but statistically it's it's missed way more often than it's scored is what i was trying to say um but and that's what it does my head in when you listen to co commentators saying oh x player has to score when he misses a header from 10 yards out when he's like at the top of his jump and you're like come on like expected goals says that 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 chance is scored like 10% of the time and you're telling me he's got to score it. Like, So you, you don't want to use single shot XG analysis, but also at the same time, you're like, well, this can also tell you that you might want to um, understand a little bit more when when you're saying players must score.
2: And one of the things I've noticed that I'm quite interested in is that, you know, during a game, quite often I'll head over to InfoGoal um, to find out the XG of the first half or, you know, maybe at, the, at full time to have a look at the chances. But when it comes to recording the episodes, the review episodes, you know, we'll use the FB ref XG values and, and it's fair to say that the, you know, the values can be wildly different. And I was wondering if you could explain to us you know, why this happens. Why are there such big discrepancies between what, what someone might see on InfoGoal and what someone might see on FBREF or, or another provider?
3: As John was saying, you get sort of more complex models and FBREF uh, uses Statsbomb XG model and they, they are the industry leader um, in XG models. Um, they, they use more... Um, variables in, in theirs than anybody else. I think InfoGoal is primarily location based, not very much else. Uh, it's probably got a couple of other variables in there, but not very much else. Whereas um, the stats bomb model accounts for whether the keeper is like on the floor at the time, all kinds of things like that. Like They use proper like freeze frames so they know how many blocking defenders are, are nearby or what yeah what how high the ball was in the air at the time they they've got by far more more variables than anybody else
2: so we've just got a couple more things about um about xg to discuss uh, so joe hill had a question for you joe hill of this parish he says why do some XG stats appear lower than than they should? He says some tappings that strikers would seemingly knock in, you know, maybe 95% of the time will still only be 0.6, uh, 0.6 XG. So does Joe just have a warped perception of how much strikers actually score them or is, or is there something else at play here?
4: A couple of things to say. Firstly, yes, he does have a warped perception of how much people score and I think most people do. So there's no, there's no shame in that. The other thing to say is, is that he, what he said here is, do I have a warped perception of how much strikers actually score them? And the point is, is that when you're building a model, what you're saying is that the average player in that league taking that shot would would have this chance of scoring it. And obviously, there'll be a lot of players in that situation who aren't strikers. So it's not simply quite so simple of, as as being like elite players knocking in tap-ins it obviously will be a really high figure but there are going to be you know defenders who find themselves at corners for tap-ins and you, they may not be quite so good at, at quote-unquote finishing which is another conversation altogether so yeah that that's what you just have to keep in mind is that one yeah you probably slightly overrate how often players score uh, to the that it's not actually just strikers that we're talking about here it is an average figure for an average player in a group of leagues so it's taking all of those data points and averaging them out um, I would also say that that means that when you're talking about elite players they they tend to finish um, especially strikers or forwards they do tend to finish over their expected goal figures because of that so you'll get players who are just very very good at finishing um, and so they will probably score more than you would expect them to because you know, you're know you comparing them against that base level average player taking the shot from that position obviously it skews slightly towards forwards because forwards take more shots but you're still talking about elite forwards versus the average forwards across
2: five leagues Okay, so one more question about XG Hobbsy what is post-shot XG and why is it useful? So post-shot
3: XG is actually is best used, it's certainly the FB ref post-shot XG, which again is stats bomb. is actually best used for a goalkeeper metric more than it is for shot quality metric, although um, there are those out there. But basically it's once the ball has actually been struck... Measuring its trajectory and its speed and um, so on, how likely is that to then end up as a goal? So then you know about the quality of the goalkeeper. Like, are they have have they just pulled off a save from a um, from a zero point eight um, post shot xg shot? And in which case, it's an extraordinary save like, from from the keeper.
4: If you took a shot from miles out, it could be very low expected goals. But if you if that player clonks it towards the top corner, obviously the chance of that going in then becomes a lot higher. Yeah. Um. So what you're what you're then saying is, if a player takes a shot from miles out and it's a really good effort and the keeper saves it, it's not just counting as a 0.1 xg chance. You're then going to say this is more like a 0.5 xg chance, uh, post xg chance. Sorry. So you're just adding a little bit more a layer of data there.
3: You can improve the quality of your chances by the
2: shots you're actually taking rather than just what you've created. So when Stuart Dallas picks up the ball anywhere in the opponent's half and absolutely <laughs> shit-pings it towards goal and turns, you know, something which on, on the face of it is like a 0.01 chance and it ends up being, you know, maybe a 0.5. So basically what we're saying is that you can improve the quality of a chance if, if, you, if you shoot well or if your shooting's good. It can happen, yeah. <laughs> when it gets dallas <laughs> So we'll um, quite often talk about variance or, or regressions of the mean on our channel, John. So could you um, explain to us what what that is and, and why it matters?
4: I said that word before, stochastic, which means that something that you're analysing has... A level of chaos to it, but also enough order that you can actually make predictions off the basis of it. And so, for me, variance and regression sort of fits into that into that mould. Which is uh, another word that you'll hear statisticians use a lot is noise. Uh, And noise basically means you know when you have small sample sizes, you you could maybe have a big gap between your various data points. And uh, you know if you're saying is trying to work out if a player is good at a certain metric, and you only have like three or four data points for them, they'll they'll likely be spread apart and it's hard to tell which one is going to be the most representative. And so um, when we're talking about variance or regression, what we're talking about is just adding more and more data into the the sample size and, and getting a clearer picture of where things are at. Um, I mentioned before that leads. Uh, overperform their defensive expected goals so they expected goals against to the tune of about 10 goals in the last 10 games um, now we can argue until the cows come home about whether or not that's simply um, a reality of the fact that Leeds were maybe uh, breaking the model a bit because they were defending in a certain way that only allowed smaller chances to be created and yes you invite a lot of big cha- a lot of chances but if they're smaller xg chances then um, you know 10 0.1 xg chances is is obviously much less likely to be to equal one goal than one one xg chance in that sense um but the point remains that actually a lot of and i've been following statistic analysis A statistical analysis of football for a while and I've seen this happen almost invariably that whenever a team comes out and overperforms or underperforms expected goals in terms of one way or the other or defensive side of things people always say oh does this mean the model isn't good enough and then the next season that team always then reverts closer to what you might expect from them so with Leeds we've talked about that overperformance of um, expected goals against Um, the question is will that carry on next season Um, and when people talk about regression what they mean is that actually if you if they were to carry on playing the way that they were playing you would expect that the the number of goals that they can see to probably go up a little bit from what it was last season.
3: Yeah, exactly. So for for Leeds we don't know how that how their xg against is going to look uh, next season yet. Like we we may fix some of the issues that that we had last season but it's what yeah John's point is obviously if we don't and we carry on defending in the same way even though a, a lot of people think, well, we we hugely improved our defending second half of the season, some of the underlying numbers say say otherwise, and, and that could catch us up uh, if, if we don't improve the, the performance level there.
4: So essentially, Leeds could play the same way next season and finish a couple of places lower, yeah. despite the fact that their numbers are looking exactly the same same way so it's just when we're talking about variance we're talking about that so you just have to assess a team's um, performance over the course of a season and say okay we've we've probably overperformed a little bit here what would it have looked like if we'd have underperformed if just by pure luck a few things went the wrong way Um, and and that's gives you a much better assessment of where a team are actually at I think
3: but importantly even though our defensive numbers were bad we could have had the flip side of the coin of the Variants there and we still would have finished 15th or something we would have been well fine
2: so we're quite used to hearing about you know possession stats all the time in the media and on the tv and that seems to be um, a stat that's given quite a bit of prominence so you know is possession important and are all possession stats created equal
4: yeah i find possession stats really interesting because when opt were originally collecting possession stats, they realised that the only way you could either do it was by having like a chess clock. So a chess clock is obviously a clock used in chess where you just, when one player's turn it is, they p- press the button down and it starts logging time. And then when, when the turn switches over, you switch to the other one. And they were using guys and a chess clock to work out who had the most possession. So as soon as a player lost the ball for one team, you'd press the clock down one side and then roughly you could work out the possession based on the ratio of those two numbers. But obviously that's a really time heavy thing to do because you need you need a person watching the game doing that for the whole of the game and if they miss one press one way or the other your your data's automatically out and what they noticed at Opta is that actually if you divide the number of um if you find out the ratio of the passes so if a team makes 300 passes and the other team makes um what would it be 200 passes then that actually works out in terms of possession so the team with 300 um passes would probably have about 60 percent of possession and the team with 200 passes would have about 40 and so what they what they did then was they just shifted over to counting passes um and then making sure that that they were working the ratio out based on that and so in a lot of respects like that's a really that just goes to show how how like ephemeral the idea of possession really is what's more interesting i think is turnovers of possession and that's some of the work that tom warville did last season was looking at that and you can you can find out a lot more about how teams play, not based on how much possession they have, but on how many how many turnovers they have within those possessions as well. So Leeds have high possession, but they turn the ball over way more than a team like Manchester City, who are a heavy possession side, right? Who will try and keep the ball as long as possible. Whereas Leeds are a lot more transitional, and um, and so they'll try and um, win the ball back and then and then quickly attack. Um, and so you're you're constantly relying on turnovers of the ball. So yeah, possession possession stats are, I guess. Interesting to an extent, but there's still so many more layers below that that you really need.
2: And you wanted to touch on possession value models too, here, didn't you, John?
4: Yeah. Well, people talk about possession value models, and uh, I guess this is we're talking about advanced metrics here. A possession value model is 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 attempting to do what I've just said there. You know, you can't you can take possession stats and say, well, is it really that interesting that one team had 55% possession in the end, they had 45% possession because it doesn't necessarily indicate more or less of a likelihood of winning. And we saw last season Leeds won a lot of games from having less possession than their opponents. Um, so possession value models are just a, an attempt to, I guess, interpret that data a little bit more. Uh, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to work out whether or not value, uh, possessions are going to add to your chances of scoring, uh, of scoring goals. So, um, yeah, what what you're doing then is you're ascribing values to various events on the pitch and um, and and sort of totting them up. Um, and Josh should really talk about this because he's more of a, a of an expert on this sort of stuff. But what you're doing is you're you're ascribing values to possessions so that some possessions are more valuable than others. If you possess the ball near the goal, obviously you're more likely to score there than you are than if you're possessing the ball at the back um and there's there's other metrics that have been built up so things like expected goal chains and what they do is they they basically look at an expected goal um value for a for a chance and then they work it back all the passes from there and give everyone that that amount of xg and then if you do that for a whole game you can say oh look this center back has a lot of xg which they initiated the first pass on Uh, that's usually quite um, frowned upon that sort of approach to to the the data because it's obviously quite noisy. Because if you're always constantly playing it through your centre back, and then you eventually get a goal. Um Twenty passes later it doesn't necessarily mean that that centre-back is has been that important in it so again that's where the word noise might come in so you, you're saying well how much are we actually learning about, about the game from that um, and then just another thing on here is expected threat is another thing there's another sort of possession value model that people talk about and that's just again about looking at where the ball is at uh, any time in a in a game um and trying to work out what the the likelihood of scoring a goal from that possession is even if you don't take the shot um so there's also non shot xg models as well so they're basically saying sometimes you have a, the ball in dangerous areas and no one gets a shot away that isn't recognized in expected Um, goal data because it only takes actual shots at goal to uh, to be important so all of these very complicated sounding models are literally just ways of trying to give values to certain game states where the positions where the ball is and say this meant that this team was more likely to win than the other team so um, that's where that's the next step that that these models are sort of being taken on
2: so do we um Get a game state klaxon there, even though it was a slightly <laughs> different context in which you used it.
4: Yeah, it was slightly different.
2: Just to say, when we're talking about noise, I think what we mean and what we're talking about is any factor that makes the things that we're trying to look for or are trying to see less obvious. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, once you've got possession of the ball, you've got to do something useful with it. So, Hobbsy, tell us about some of the more useful um, ball progression statistics.
3: I mentioned earlier about progressive runs um and progressive passes um obviously progressive runs you can sort of measure that in a couple of different ways so you can just quantify how many runs a player's made so uh, luke Ayling has made five progressive runs in this game or it could be he's made um uh he's progressed the ball for 300 yards uh in this game and and then you could go well he's progress to all 300 yards via five different runs. So you've got different um, levels to it. Um, and then there's d- different ways to sort of break that down uh, further as well with um, progressive passes. So um, not just... Ha- Sorry, I should actually say what a progressive pass is. So just for us, I didn't do that. But um, there are various different... Um, uh, definitions for progressive passes but the sort of generally accepted one is a pass that um moves the ball at i think it's at least 10 meters uh closer to the opposition goal uh than it was initially and it can't start from within your own defensive third so center backs can get a lot of progressive passes and in fact quite often defenders progress the ball more than than anybody else because basically the whole field is in front of them um however um they can't just boot it away from their own box and that be counted as a as progressing the ball so it can't be but that that's that's their way of trying to not get noise into into ball progression there when it's just actually really a clearance um but yeah then you have things like um passes into the final third all kinds of things like that where you're trying to go well did, did they actually get into the area where they can hurt the opponent rather than just where they progressed it into the middle third and then they got stuck because that that happens as, as well
2: and something that's been bothering me for years and i'm finally going to get an answer to it uh, is this question what exactly is a key pass
4: do you know what? I don't really know the correct definition because there's so again so many of them, and this is going to be a, an often repeated chorus on this podcast, I think, because in so many of these different instances, the issue is is that each data gathering company is going to use their own definition for clarity for their data gatherers, and so um, you'll end up with different definitions. So the the one that we sort of use as a rule of thumb, actually, I don't even know what the one we would use as a, as a rule of thumb would be. What would would you what would you say that, uh, the definition of a key pass is,
3: obviously? I just take it as the pass before a shot is taken and you could just call it a shot assist um but some people use only use key passes if it's if it's not an assist otherwise it's an assist but i hate assists as a as a metric i don't think we've put this down on on here but or maybe we have because of talking about
2: expected assists but that's why you hate assists <laughs> i mean, this is literally the first time i've ever heard you mention that
3: well because it it sort of, you can't use assists to judge how good a, a player is as a as a chance creator, because the thing about assists is what I could I could pass the ball to you, Darren, with uh, no one in front of you, the keeper's on the floor, you're two yards out, and you hoof it over the bar.
2: And that is exactly what would happen.
3: <laughs> I don't get an assist for that. Whereas with expected assists, I I just got a 0.8. It's xa for that for that pass so then we can actually see how creative i am
2: so we've moved on here um to the idea of shot creating actions and expected assists i think
3: yeah sorry sorry i jumped i jumped in there but it stems from that whole thing of what's a key pass and mm. so on
4: yeah I, I guess the the problem with these these sorts of metrics then assists and expected assists is that what you're doing is you're adding another level of noise right because when it, when you're talking about expected goals you're entirely responsible for the chances that you take whereas when you're talking about expected assists Stuart Dallas could play in Pat Bamford or Liam Cooper Um, and those two those two players are going to be completely different players in terms of what you would expect the the resulting action to be Um, and so there is a certain level of noise in, 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 in things like assists and expected assists because you are relying on on other players finishing rather than your own. And so you're ascribing a level of culpability to a player that isn't really their own. So yeah, I think that's, that's sort of what I would say about that. But in terms of, have we moved on to the shot creating actions and expected assists here? Yeah. uh, yeah I'll, I'll I'll just run through this and then Josh can, can talk about them but so shot creating actions is a metric that's used on FB Ref, which we keep banging on about because it's a, a free resource available to everyone so if you want to get the data on Premier League football which leads to playing in then head over to fbref.com and, and yeah it's all there but they've got this metric called shot creating actions which is just exactly what it says on the tin it's any action which results in a, in a shot being created and again that's a really good way of maybe assessing how productive players are being um, so someone like Fenia has really good shot creating action numbers um, and expected assists is just applying the logics of expected goals to assists and you're just simply taking the, uh, the the probability of a goal being scored from, from your passing to someone um, at the end of that. So yeah, players who have high expected assist numbers are players who put um, their teammates into scenarios where you would expect them to score a lot of goals. So uh, again, if you compare a player's assists, as Josh said, you know if we play Darren through and he hoofs it over from two yards out, um, according to assists, you just don't get any recognition for that. But but obviously the expected assist would be very high, and so you end up um, recognizing that a player has been let down by their teammates um, more so than than you might do from the uh, from the assist side of things.
3: I think it's it's limited to the two actions just before the shot, so it it, it doesn't involve all the build up. So you need it's more like the person that the two players that either did the pass before the pass or um, maybe went Rafinha dribbled and then passed it to Harrison and then Harrison crossed it and it's like that kind of um, situation. So you still need to be late in the attack.
4: Presumably, a tackle would count as well, right? So if you tackled someone and then the ball came out and you scored from that, be-
3: defensive actions count as well. Yeah. So you, yeah, it. I think. I think. Strauch must have got a goal creating action when he won the ball. Did he win it and then pass it straight to Rafinha or did he just win it and it went to Rafinha who then passed it to Bamford who scored against Leicester?
4: And he did he did the same against for the the Rodrigo goal where he won the ball and played it to Harrison and then Harrison. Yeah, he
3: yeah, he would have been given shot and goal creating actions in both.
2: John you mentioned earlier that some of the things you look for are kind of more off the ball metrics and you think that they indicate when leads are playing well but you're also on record as saying that it's really difficult to quantify defensive um defensive activity so why is that why what what is it about defending that's hard to capture using numbers
4: yeah so obviously when you're talking about on on ball versus off ball like when you're talking about on ball stuff it's very easy to quantify what's happened as we've just talked about there. you can talk about making a tackle you can make a you can talk about making um you can talk about making a pass. You can talk about dribbling, etc. But obviously, a lot of the off-ball stuff that takes place with leads, it's it's slightly um, simpler because a lot of what we do is pressures, and pressures are obviously sort of on-ball actions technically. Uh, but but you know, you can measure those sorts of things. You can measure when players move into the vicinity of other players with the intention of slowing them down or tackling them. Uh, but there's a lot to defensive actions that that actually don't show up because so a lot of a lot of what defending it about is about is about closing down space or limiting space or manipulating space or forcing players wide etc and so there's just simply no way of, of being able to to quantify a negative in that s- instance so um yeah the with that in mind the, the majority of uh, the metrics that we have are basically ball focused um and what we are seeing now and we'll talk about this in a little bit with the when, when it comes to the future is how do we start quantifying those those sort of more spatial elements how do you work out whether or not a player is good at shepherding um players wide and I, this shows up really well for Leeds because if you look at um, players who are very proactive defensively so players like Liam Cooper and Diego Llorente they'll show up well in the stats because they're making a lot of ac- on-ball actions in that sense uh, or ball oriented actions whereas if you look at players like uh, Pascal Strauch, who is a lot um, less, a lot more passive, I think, in the way that he defends, he'll show up a lot worse. So what do you do? Do you look at those, the metrics and say, well, clearly Llorente and Cooper are better defenders than than Strauch? You may want to do that, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who do want to do that, but um, the... The, the the problem is is that you're not really quantifying the stuff that that Strout does well, which is shepherding players wide, which is um, holding ground, which is reading space and, and anticipating where where the ball is going to be. Now interceptions does that to a certain extent, but you obviously want a little bit more of a of a, a, a level there in terms of what what available um, metrics there are for you. So yeah, it's it's pretty difficult to quantify those sorts of um, spatial uh, actions. I would say.
3: I mean, if someone can quantify good positioning, they'll probably make a decent bit of money, I'd say.
2: So what are the basic defensive actions that we that we can uh, measure, Hobbsy?
3: Well, I mean, it's, it's the things like tackles, interceptions, pressures, which John mentioned, and that's, again, that's a stats bomb thing, um, which was brought in to show defensive work, which doesn't actually necessarily involve an attempt to win the ball, but it's an attempt to directly close down an opponent that could then see them turn the ball over. Um so Patrick Bamford, he might not make a load of tackles. Um, but we know he's getting through a, a heck of a lot of defensive work and he's putting up a high a high number of pressures. Um yeah, your, your classics like your um aerial duels, uh, aerial duel win percentage, so we can know does a like does a player not just um contest a lot of aerial duels but actually do they win the ball a lot in the air um those
2: kinds of things that i think people would be a lot more they would just know them and we all know um how important pressing is for leads under marcelo bielsa john so can you tell us a bit about how um how pressing metrics work
4: pressing stats are pretty basic but you're basically um Quantifying the times when, as we've said, players move towards other players in order to slow the on the ball in order to slow them down and to or to tackle them. Um, the big thing with pressing statistics is that there's a statistic called pressure success, which is basically any pressure which results in the ball being turned over within five seconds of that pressing action Um, the problem with that is when you're talking about pressure success is that you're indicating that what you're attempting in every pressure is to win the ball back within five seconds which isn't always the case so teams that are maybe marking in a mid block or low block it may not be the case that they necessarily want to win the ball back immediately in that that, from that possession um, um, or that pressure attempt what you could be doing is forcing a player into a wide area where you're then going to spring a spring a, um, a pressing trap or something so you, you do have to be careful with with pressing stats um and i think that the, we talk about this a fair amount on the on the podcast but the the data that's available is you know pressures players that are making pressures and and where they are making those pressures so you can divide it into the different thirds as well which is which is quite useful for leads so you can see if if leads are pressing high or if they're pressing more in the middle and it sort of gives you a good sense of how the game has gone
2: so what what do we mean when we um, talk about Pressures,
4: I think they have to come into a
3: close vicinity of, of the opponent and they need to, um, I don't, like they don't have to attempt to win the ball or anything, but it, you can tell there's a difference between just sort of lightly jogging near a player and forcing them to make an action. So they need to release the ball because if they don't, you're going to be right on top of them. It's that kind of situation.
4: I think Rodrigo is a really interesting person to look at from this point of view because we had a lot of people criticizing us for saying that we didn't think Rodrigo was a great presser um and Rodrigo puts up fairly okay like pressing numbers in terms of pressure success so people were saying people were arguing well he makes a decent number of pressures and he makes a decent number of successful pressures so how can we complain about his his pressing but I think part of the problem here is that because of the way that Leeds play being fairly high um intensity um counter pressing means that Leeds do turn the ball over quite a bit and and also the you're you're talking about the definitions of a, of a of a pressure and there's times when rodrigo will be technically given a pressure when he's chasing after a player who's who's got into space as well so i i do think this is a, an area where you need to you need to have sort of more clarity on that and i think what what we've done with Talking about Rodrigo's pressing is that we've gone through and watched all of his pressing actions from a game, and based on the eye test, have made have made those those um, qualified comments. So it's the same with everything in stats. You have to use the eye test to back up the data, and the data to back up the eye test, and, and inf- allow one to inform the other. And so um, I think that's just worth saying in the in the pressing se- section at least.
2: So what what could or should Leeds do in future with regards data? Have you got any ideas kicking around, John?
4: Yeah, I've, I've moved this question into this section because like so much of what's interesting for me about this is that Leeds are so unique as I've said off the ball. The stuff that they do like the high press that they do, the coordinated press, the man marking system that actually a lot of the the sort of things that Leeds might be interested with respect to recruitment will be to do with how players perform off the ball. And I just don't think there's anywhere near enough data available on what uh, on what off the ball actions uh, look like. And we're going to talk in a little bit about some of the, the exciting you know, developments in in um, data analysis. And one of those is StatsBomb have developed a, a 360 system where they use what's called computer vision. Josh talked about it before, but they take freeze frames of every event that's logged in, there in their database. And you can then click on it and it will show you Where everyone was positioned for those for those sorts of um, um, for for each of those individual events, so you can have a good sense of how close players are to one another, um, how many players are around them and stuff. So you, if you say you're looking for a, I guess the way that this is intended to be used is if you're looking for like a press resistant midfielder, you can you can sort of look at the way that you can look at the passes that players are making and how how players are uh, opponents are positioned around them. But for me, what's way more interesting is that we're looking for players who are going to be good. Uh, are going to be mobile and good at pressing uh, and I think that you, from using this data you could develop numbers of metrics so like speed between pressures or uh, how quick players are arriving in um, pressures uh, in pressing um, actions and stuff like that and the, the, for me the, the big question here is always like how, how do you recreate someone like Calvin Phillips who is a midfielder that no one thought anything of however people might protest about it now at the time when Bielsa came in how do you find those players who are sitting around in in clubs not being used um, and do the things that he's so good at for Leeds and I think so much of what he does that's good is off the ball stuff and and pressing actions and stuff like that that if Leeds could develop some sort of system a proprietary system for um, being able to quantify the stuff that Phillips does well which the current the the metrics don't really allow you to do very well then you'd be onto a winner because you'd you'd start finding market inefficiencies you'd players who are, are going to be fairly cheap and not doing um, much or maybe at that smaller clubs. And you would just have a whole system then based around your style of play that would allow you to get to get you know increase your recruitment um, process and would probably save you money in the long run so that's what I'm really interested in in what Leeds should be doing if I was Victor Autor I'd be starting a, a, a proprietary data gathering well not even maybe necessarily data gathering but a proprietary analysis department where we were trying to work out right what is it that Leeds do so well under Bielsa so let's just buy those players that work in that system and keep that system going.
2: Yeah, and when when you say market inefficiencies, I guess what you mean by that is finding statistics that have not been exploited yet.
4: Yeah, finding players finding players that aren't going to show up in the data. I suppose the, the, yeah. that's just a fancy way of saying what people say is moneyball now, which yeah. is looking for the players who are outliers who don't really show up because the metrics don't really know what they're looking for. Yeah.
2: So tell me about any new uh, or interesting or more advanced uh, bits of stats that have been getting you uh, excited, Hobbsy. You're the sort of man that gets excited about stats. So, so tell tell me which ones have been getting getting under your skin recently.
3: I like ones that tell you about about a team's style uh, a bit more, and this is just one example. But there's there's plenty. But um, on um, the analyst, don't know if people know about this or not, but it's a thing that uh, Opta. And stats perform. Um, started this website called The Analyst, and they have a. Um, they did a season review uh, of of the Premier League. In fact, I think they've done them for all the main main leagues, but where they just break down a whole all the stats, basically uh, loads of different things. So the basic stats as well as some of these team stats, and um, they came up with this one called direct attacks. So it's uh, the number of open play sequences that starts just inside the team's own half has at least 50% mo- of movement towards the opposition's goal and ends in a shot or a touch in the opposition box. And Leeds were second only to Aston Villa uh, in, that, um, in that metric. Uh, so that the top four for that metric is Aston Villa, Leeds, Liverpool, Tottenham, and then Man City sit just one uh, one direct attack below uh, below Tottenham. But that essentially tells you about something about Leeds. Um, we know we know it if you watch Leeds a lot, you know it anyway that when we get the ball, we want to get forward quickly. but Leeds are quite a um, unique style of team where we want to have possession. we want to control the ball where we can, but also, we want to attack very quickly as soon as we as we can manage to do that. So you get other teams that defend very deep and then attack very quickly, um, and then you get other teams that hold the ball and attack quite slowly. Leeds sort of have this sort of hybrid style under under Bielsa. There's lots of different things like that.
4: I mentioned the StatsBomb 360 computer vision stuff, which is, as I said, taking snapshots of of, of events every time you log them as a as a um as a data point in a in a game but there's the the big thing that that's sort of what that's saving you from doing is having to track every moment of every game and know where everyone is that's the next step i think in in analytic um analytics for football is what's called almost seems like the holy grail of 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 uh, analysis which is tracking data which is tracking data is just basically taking cameras putting it around the Around the football pitch, a number of cameras, and then just logging where the ball and all the players are at any one time. Um, and so, what you're doing then is you're you're able to say you're able to start making um, a, a lot more comments about space and stuff like that. Um, so, we talked to before about how do you how do you um, assess a player's positioning. Um, how do you come up with metrics for that really hard to do but as soon as you start doing tracking um in, in that sense you can you can start saying well this player is is really using space well um, because you can start using computer computer analysis to and etc cetera, etc cetera, to just start plugging away, finding out what's actually going on. So tracking data is the one that that everyone is excited about um, because, yeah, what you're doing then is you're able to start making comments about the relationship between where players are on the pitch and you might be able to say, oh, this defender is always keeping within this amount of distance of of the player that they're marking or you you can see these two centre-backs are always within this amount of distance between one another and that's partly explaining why they're giving away so few goals, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just like adding more and more data points and the problem is is that obviously you're talking about huge amounts of data there um and so the, the stats bomb 360 stuff is designed to allow you to start doing some of those things but without having that huge quantity of data because what you're saying is well we'll just take a, a point in time picture of what's going on on the pitch rather than having to do like every moment so yeah that, that, that's the next step i think
2: that makes a lot of sense um, and what metric? Uh, John, do you wish was available right now that isn't available publicly?
4: Yeah, it's tricky because I think like most of the stuff that is av- is available and is useful, we can get our hands on. I think the probably the one thing really that that I would say is physical data, and uh, again, physical data is one of those things that Leeds fans love because Leeds always do well in it, uh, and I think it's really important to to sort of quantify that and qualify that by saying it's not really about leads necessarily doing because you know there there will be certain situations where running too much is a bad thing um I would like to start seeing a little bit more of, uh, of that becoming available so that we can start looking deeper and seeing what it is that that, that is useful or not useful about the way that players run and players, the way, way that players move but we're, we're seeing a lot more of that physical data not just how far do a players run in a game uh, it's also how many sprints a players making etc how many recovery runs and as soon as that sort of stuff is available um, again you're just getting another layer that you can put over the top and see why teams might be doing well
3: I would like to see some more of the tracking data as uh, there are some some ways through the stats bomb stuff that they they will start to release but it won't be everything uh, that we'll be able to see but with tracking data you can really see things like uh, how many players you've taken out of the game through a line breaking pass and so on um, those kinds of metrics are out there if you if you pay <laughs> if you pay the companies uh, for them but for the average Joe, you, you can't get those.
2: Okay, one final question. Uh, if having listened to this podcast, people people's curiosity isn't satisfied and they want to know more about the use of stats in football, what can they, they watch, read, or listen to Hobbsy?
3: There's some good stuff on the analyst, which I just mentioned. Follow people like Peter McKeever on on Twitter. Follow people like Tom Warville. um he writes for The Athletic and, and does a lot of stats pieces on there. Um, I'm not going to do an advert for The Athletic, so, you know, whatever.
2: They got that covered, right?
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. there's a, there's a lot of adverts for, for them out there. Uh, yeah, Get the Numbers Game. It's a, it's a good good book. There's plenty of other football stats books out there, but there's and there's just plenty of good Twitter accounts, to be honest. Like a lot of them. Um, a lot of clubs now have have um, fan channels like ours, and there's some really good ones out there. To be honest, some of the best ones that I follow are actually Man United-based ones, but um, I know I shouldn't shouldn't say, but there are some really good ones. And they're actually very nice people, so I'm just saying.
2: Gotcha. <laughs> John?
4: Yeah, Friends of Tracking, I think, is a really good channel. Um, that's a channel run by David Sumter, who is a mathematician who um, does a lot of Um, like behavioral science stuff but has moved that over into into football and analyzing what's going on there and yeah friends of tracking have put out huge amounts of information for people who want to get more into this side of things i think if you're really if you're really into the statistical side of things then the best thing to do is to is to work on like learning a programming language and being able to um gather and and organize data in in and represent that data in in certain ways and josh obviously has done that has learned Uh, do you learn python is that the one that you learned
3: uh yeah i have yeah i'm still um i'm still pretty uh reliant on a lot of copying and pasting and things like that but yeah fc python um was a twitter account that i followed and used his website to um to help me learn how to code a little bit and MPL soccer uh is a good website with a good twi- um, Python package to help make vi- visuals.
4: I think the important thing to say is that there's so much resources out there that if you just sort of start delving into them on, particularly on Twitter, and I can I can recommend what, as Josh says, there's so many people who are very good at this on Twitter that if you if you follow them and you pick stuff up from them, and you'll soon find other resources. There's so many resources out there if you want to really seriously get into uh, into stats, and and that's the that's the way to go. I think the the most important for most the most important thing for most people who listen to our channel who are just sort of like Darren Stats curious is that you just make sure that you get into the habit of being able to distinguish between good use of stats and bad use of stats so uh, just because someone's putting out a nice viz doesn't necessarily mean that they're saying anything useful so um, that would be the only caveat that I would that I would keep in mind is just think about what, what what story is this
2: person trying to tell how are they doing it and, and what are the issues with it <coughs> Well, I think that kind of brings us to the end of, of our stats primer there. And it's been, it's been great, actually. I've, I've learned absolutely loads during this and, and I I hope that the listeners have too. So thanks, thanks for that, guys. If you are interested in more of what we do, then then we have got a Patreon account and we've got some very reasonable prices and some really useful and, and interesting stuff coming up. I think we're going to be putting out some information about some of the new things that are going to be coming onto our Patreon channel soon and there's, there's loads of stuff that, that I'm really, really excited about and I, th- I hope that you will be too. Um, if you like what we what we do and, and you want to give us a review on your podcast repository of choice, please do because they, they really do help us to be more visible. What are we doing next week, John?
4: I think we're going to do another primer, but this time on tactics next week. So do get your questions in if you've got any questions about the sort of tactical ideas that we talk about, but we never really explain very well. Do get in touch and give us those questions.
3: I'll be really impressed if you guys manage to go as long as this
2: one on the next one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And uh, with that, I think all that there really is left for me to do is to say thank you to John. Thank you, mate. And thanks to Hobbsy. Cheers. Bye then.